Welcome to Backlog Books. In this podcast, I will be recapping and discussing what I've been reading lately. My name is Kara. Thank you for joining me, and please be prepared for spoilers. It's good to be back podcasting. I had a very busy month. We went to Dragon Con. I started a new job. I got sick. I got better. It's been a very busy time. I'm glad I took the break. I feel kind of refreshed, which is good because the book I'm talking about today, uh, well, just, just buckle up because I read this back in July and distance has not improved my perspective on it. This time we are talking about From Blood and Ash by Jennifer L. Armentrout. Here is the summary. It is excessively long, like the rest of this book. Okay. Chosen from birth to usher in a new era, Poppy's life has never been her own. The life of the maiden is solitary, never to be touched, never to be looked upon, never to be spoken to, never to experience pleasure. Waiting for the day of her ascension, she would rather be with the guards fighting back the evil that took her family than preparing to be found worthy by the gods. But the choice has never been hers. The entire kingdom's future rests on Poppy's shoulders, something she's not even quite sure she wants for herself. Because a maiden has a heart, and a soul, and longing, and when Hawk, a golden-eyed guard honor-bound to ensure her ascension, enters her life, destiny and duty become entangled with desire and need. He incites her anger, makes her question everything she believes in, and tempts her with the forbidden. Forsaken by the gods and feared by mortals, a fallen kingdom is rising once more, determined to take back what they believe is theirs through violence and vengeance. And as the shadow of those cursed draws closer, the line between what is forbidden and what is right becomes blurred. Poppy is not only on the verge of losing her heart and being found unworthy by the gods, but also her life, when every blood-soaked thread that holds her world together begins to unravel. From Blood and Ash was published in 2020. It won the Goodreads Choice Award that same year, which is like a little popularity contest put on by Goodreads. Jennifer L. Armentrout writes fantasy books and has been publishing books since 2011, both self-publishing and through traditional publishing houses. She has also published romance novels under the pseudonym J. Lynn. Now, there were some, I don't know if shenanigans is necessarily the right word for this, but there was a story I heard about this author or involving this author before I ever read this book. So there was another author named Jennifer Armentrout, spelled with an I instead of an E, who wrote in the same genres and was published and popular in 2006, so before Armentrout with an E, who is our author for this book. Now, when Armentrout with an E began publishing books, people, understandably, got them confused. After several years of this, Armin Trout, with an I, ended up changing her legal name to Jenny Trout. It's more complicated than that, obviously. Um, I don't have time to cover all of it. I'm including a link to a blog post that Jenny Trout wrote about her experience. 
which I recommend reading if you want to understand more about that whole situation. I just mention it because I have seen several stories in recent years about new authors choosing to publish under names that are similar to already established authors, just trying to capitalize on someone else's popularity. I don't know if that's what happened here. It seems like something Armin Trout with an E's agent or publisher should have informed her of, but I'm not part of the publishing industry. What do I know? You know, I just sometimes think there should be like a, you know how no two actors can have the same name? I just think there should be something like that for writers, maybe. Now, let's dive into this. I have some content warnings for physical and emotional abuse, including sexual harassment. Like I said earlier, I did not like this book. But I suffered through all 600 pages of it. So now you get to hear about it. That's just the way it works. To begin with, there was absolutely no reason for this book to be as long as it was. It was so repetitive, telling us something and then beating us over the head with it for a few paragraphs and then repeating it two chapters later. It happened throughout the whole book. Something would happen and the main character, Poppy, thinks, oh, this is why that happened and what it means. This is why it's important. Ad nauseum. Meanwhile, I am yelling at the page that I know this because I have been reading this book. I know what happened 10 pages ago. You don't have to repeat it for me every chapter. Okay, the world building and narrative were all over the place. I will do my best to construct a cohesive storyline for this episode. I just want you to appreciate that it is a struggle. My personal belief which is unfounded in fact. I have no actual proof of this. I just don't think that anyone edited this book. It is so clunky. It repeats itself so often. Uses the wrong words, changing the meaning of the sentence frequently. Misspells names and is missing a lot of closing quotation marks. And I know that things like typos and missing punctuation happen in well-edited, published books. I know that. It's just there was too much. Okay? It was obnoxious. At my absolute most generous, this feels like a second draft. Also, I hope no one is trying to sell you this as a young adult novel. One of my pet peeves with publishing lately is that it seems like publishers will take one look at a fantasy book written by a woman and like immediately stamp and brand it like it's young adult. And this one is kind of in a weird spot because it does have so many tropes and like narrative choices that I would expect to find in a young adult novel, but it also has explicit sex and abuse scenes written in. And I had this problem with Nevernight, too, now that I think about it. So we really need the new adult genre back, don't we? Huh. Oh, well, I think the time has passed on that one. Now, it's very clear that Armin Trout with an E 
was trying to do something with this book. Like I just said, there are certain tropes and like storylines you would see in this kind of book, things that people have criticized about this kind of book, like the main character being super special and not like the other girls and the love interest being like the catalyst for change, that sort of thing. Armin Trout with an E was trying to construct a story that would subvert those tropes. I hate saying the word tropes over and over, but that's what I got. And the reason I know that that's what she was trying to do is that she literally put in the text of the book the main character thinking something like, just because I was different doesn't make me more special than anyone else. And then later thinking that, oh, Hawk wasn't the catalyst for my life changing. Like literally putting it on the page. And you know what? Telling me that doesn't actually make it true when the rest of the story is showing me something else. And I don't mind. I really don't mind when an author is obviously, like, trying to upend our expectations and subvert tropes. I just really object to the author beating me over the head with it. Which, thanks to the repetitive, long-winded nature of this book, is what it felt like. Okay, it's been 10 minutes. I guess I'll try to talk about what actually happens in the book. This book is set in a fantasy world about 400 years after a civil war known as the War of the Two Kings. The war was between the Ascended, capital A, theoretically blessed by the gods, and the Atlanteans, theoretically abandoned by the gods. The result, according to the Ascended, who were the winners, was the destruction of Atlantia, but not before the Atlanteans created hordes of monsters known as Craven, which now roam the lands and randomly attack cities. Each city is pretty isolated. It's rare and dangerous to travel, given the hordes of Craven, which are like mindless vampires, basically. In theory, the Ascended are blessed by the gods with long life and have like a connection to the gods somehow, and because the Ascended are hashtag blessed, people are expected to give their children to the Ascended service. And this is where it kind of falls apart for me. I mean, it falls apart way before this. But let me just explain real quick. Your firstborn child, you get to keep. Good job. You made a baby. Your secondborn child goes to become an Ascended. Well, that's pretty cool, you know, blessed by the gods, whatever, live forever. Your third and fourth born children, however, go to the temples to serve the gods. So in order to maintain the population at its current number, each couple has to have five children, assuming they don't also take any extra children you have. And that's not even taking into account how many people apparently die from the constant craven attacks or illness, like the blood plague or whatever that's happening. How is there a population left in this country at all? And part of my problem, one of my many problems with this book, is that the Ascended could not more obviously be the actual bad guys. Like, they have some good propaganda, clearly, and have somehow convinced 
most of their population to send them three quarters of their children. But it takes like one interaction with an ascended to tell you that they're evil, actually. Every single one we met in this book was awful. I think Armantrout with an E tries to counterbalance that with having our main character Poppy's brother being ascended, and Poppy has fond memories of the queen who was also ascended, but we don't actually meet either of those characters in this book. We're left with the Duke and Duchess and their lackeys in Macedonia, where Poppy is currently living, and they're so cartoonishly evil, it's honestly kind of boring. <laughs> they can't even pretend to care about non-ascended people when they're in like this huge crowd of their subjects. The whole send your children to the ascended and the temples thing has no exceptions. So they're at like this public gathering and a couple petitions the Duke and Duchess to intercede and let them keep their one remaining child since their first and second have died and the wife can't have any more children after this one. And the Duke and Duchess are like, wow, sucks to be you, pass over the baby. You know that scene in The Emperor's New Groove where Yzma says, It is no concern of mine whether your family has, what was it again? Um, food? Ha! You really should have thought of that before you became peasants. We're through here. Take him away. Next! That's literally what the Duke and Duchess are like. And another thing, I'm still wondering about this, and it's been almost three months since I read this book. Why is Poppy living in Macedonia instead of in the capital city? The whole conceit of the story is that Poppy is the maiden chosen, all capital letters, by the gods and is necessary, vital, required, mandatory for a super special secret rite of ascension. And to be clear, the rite of ascension happens every year with or without Poppy. They just need her for uh, reasons. And this super special ascension is going to happen in the capital when she's 19. So why is she currently in Macedonia when we've established how dangerous it is to travel in this world due to the roaming packs of mindless vampires? Why isn't she with the queen where she was raised? Why is she in this other town? Listen, I spent a really long time leafing through this, trying to figure out if it was explained earlier in the book, and I got nowhere. I have no idea why she was there, except that the plot needed her to be there, I guess. Anyway, at a certain point while I was reading this, I just had to let some of this go. Otherwise, I would still be staring at this book, trying to make it make sense. Okay, have I even talked about, like, the plot at all? It doesn't matter. There's barely a plot. Our main character, Poppy, is extremely isolated because she's the maiden chosen. The gods apparently insist that she never talk to anyone or do anything for no reason I can explain. I read 600 pages of this, okay? I don't understand it. She is, you know, chafing at these extremely arbitrary rules. I understand that. She has, like, magic emotion-sensing powers. 
which she has to keep secret for some reason. She rebels by sneaking out and going to bars, training to fight, oh, and by secretly killing people who are infected by craven bites, but have not yet completely turned into a craven. Remember? Craven? Discount vampire? We got that? Okay. Apparently there's a whole group of people who are doing this because the other option espoused by the Ascended is for the infected person to be dragged through the streets by a mob and burned at the stake. Like I said earlier, cartoonishly evil. The whole death with dignity movement is not particularly important to the plot of this book, except as an example of Poppy disagreeing with how the Ascended do things. It's just, like, a really embarrassingly long time for her to, like, realize that the Ascended suck when I figured it out in five pages. It dragged out for 550 pages before Poppy figured it out. We also learn that the Dark One, capital letters, is after her. The Dark One is the leader of the remnants of Atlanteans. He's their prince. He's after her because, um, uh, reasons. She's the maiden. Chosen. Okay? She's super important because reasons. Atlanteans are sort of similar to the Ascended in that they are long-lived. There are rumors about them drinking blood. That's fine. There sure are a lot of vampire stand-ins for this book where we can't seem to say the word vampire. Poppy is questioning her life, wondering why the Ascended are like this, wondering if she even wants to be part of the Rite of Ascension. She wants to have a normal life, to have the same choices as everyone else. Which is totally fair. She's fine as a protagonist, I guess? She does have a terminal case of not like the other girls and also can't know she's beautiful and also seems to think that everyone should be capable of and should want to have to physically defend themselves and should never ask for help, which is sort of weird. So part of her backstory is that her parents were killed by Craven, and she thinks that if they had been trained to fight, they would still be alive. Which, maybe? But there's only so much you can do against literal hordes of monsters. Like, I know fantasy books love to have one guy defeat 30 bad guys, but that's not really how that works. Poppy also seems to think that everyone should want to fight. Like, nonviolence isn't an option to her. She, like, looks down on people for not wanting to fight. And, like, I get it. Characters can and should have flaws. And maybe she would, like, grow beyond this at some point. I just don't think that's where the story was headed. I think the story was headed towards Poppy is right and should mercilessly murder people forever, as far as I can tell. Then, while Poppy's out enjoying her, like, one hour of outdoor time that she's given by the Ascended, one of her bodyguards is killed by a follower of the Dark One. And she gets a brand new bodyguard, Hawk Flynn. Who is the worst. I hate him. Part of the problem 
There are so many problems. Part of the problem is that the narrative loves Hawk. Have you ever read a book where it is so obvious that the author is like a little weirdly obsessed with their own character? That's exactly what this is like. Hawk never loses a fight or an argument. He is annoyingly smug. He's never wrong, even when he's telling Poppy how she really feels. Poppy will say, get off of me and I don't want you to do that. And his response is, um, actually you secretly really like it. And he constantly makes sexual advances, no matter the situation. Late in the book, he betrays her and she's fighting to escape, and he keeps talking about how much he still wants to have sex with her. And while this book does try briefly to convince me that Hawk is 21, I don't believe it, and neither should you. This man is obviously an Atlantean and is like 200 years old. There's something very gross about a much older man telling a young, very sheltered woman that she secretly wants to have sex with him, even if she doesn't know that's what she wants. And then the story bears it out, like, oh yeah, Poppy does actually want to have sex with this guy. It just sucks when a book clearly loves the love interest more than the main character. He wins every argument they have, He's easily able to overpower her, even though she's supposed to be, like, a super badass. He knows more than her. He's always ten steps ahead of her. Takes advantage of her constantly. And the book really, really, really wants me to think he's amazing. And I don't know if you have ever encountered this, but some books don't know how to make a character strong or smart without making other characters extremely stupid. Poppy is decently competent on her own, but when Hawk shows up, he instantly outdoes her and she looks like an idiot. And then as soon as he's gone and the story doesn't need him to be the best ever, Poppy goes back to being competent. It's very frustrating. Anyway, uh, plot. What's happening in this book? Followers of the Dark One attack the castle where Poppy lives, and lots of people die. The Duchess, who is Poppy's guardian, is finally like, we're sending you to the capital where you'll be safe. Why wasn't Poppy in the capital to begin with? Anyway, they have to go fast to avoid the craven, hordes of monsters. So Poppy is sent with a small group of guards, led by her brand new bodyguard, Hawk. Boy, I hope this complete stranger doesn't take advantage of this situation and steal the maiden chosen, extremely important to our right of ascension. <gasps> Could it be? They make it to a new town, and it turns out that Hawk is actually kidnapping her because, gasp, shock, horror, he's the dark one. Oh no. Poppy, bless her heart, is extremely surprised, and it takes him killing her guards in front of her to understand what's happening. She fights, Hawk sexually harasses her, and then he overpowers her and takes her captive. So at the end, we get an info dump from Hawk where he's like, everything you know is wrong. The Ascended have lied to you. The Atlanteans are alive and well. Ascended are actually vampires. Still can't see vampires. And they're going to 
eat you during the Rite of Ascension. Oh, and the Ascended are the ones creating the craven that are plaguing the country, not the Atlanteans. And Poppy, Poppy's like, I can't think of a single good reason for Hawk to lie to me about this. Are you kidding me? Are you serious? I can think of like five reasons right now why he'd lie to you. Why it would be to his advantage to have the extremely important figure for this rite of ascension to no longer want to do the rite of ascension. But the book has spent 600 pages showing me that Hawk can literally never be wrong and must always win, so I guess he's right. Poppy is his captive at the end. She wants to escape and go to the capital to confirm for herself what he told her, which congratulations on having one brain cell in this whole book. Poppy, this was your one time. She wants to find her brother, who is an ascended, and ask him if it's true, and if so, why he's been eating people. Oh, and they're like, super secret rite of ascension involves feeding on an Atlantean? And apparently the Atlantean they've been using for the right for the past however long is Hawk's brother? Hawk's original plan in kidnapping Poppy was to trade her for his brother. But at the end, the very end, this is like the last paragraph of the book, Hawk changes his mind and says he's going to take her to Atlantia so that he can marry her. And that's the end of the book. There's some stuff in there about Poppy being an extremely capable fighter. There's some attempts to, like, deconstruct the idea of beauty being a godly ideal. Hawk tells Poppy that she has choices and then says stuff like, choose what I want you to choose or else I'll choose for you later. So, yikes. My final thoughts. Uh, it wasn't good. Please don't read it. There are currently four books in this series, all of them around 600 pages long, and at least two more are expected. I don't know how you could possibly wring four books worth of plot out of this, let alone six. I assume it introduces a million new plot lines and completely moves away from everything introduced in the first book. I guess you don't have to do world building if you just change how the world works every book. I don't know that for sure. I've only read this book. It can't possibly get better. It can only get worse from here. Okay, so this is like the end. Normally I try to recommend things similar to the book that I'm talking about. While I could tell you some books that I thought were bad <laughs> and make like anti-recommendations, instead I thought I would recommend some books that did things better. And I actually had to outsource these recommendations because I literally couldn't think of anything. I was so mad at this book that I couldn't think of any other book to recommend. So thank you to the people who brought these books to my attention um, as actual good books that you should read. The Winner's Trilogy by Mary Rutkowski and the His Fair Assassin series by Robin Lefevre. Lefevre? I don't know how to say their name. I'm very sorry. Well, I'm glad that's over. Join me next time to hear about I Think It's Gonna Be Solaris by Stanislaw Lem. 
As always, you can contact me at backlogbookspod at gmail.com if you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it. The best way to do that right now is to rate and review it or just share it with a friend. You can find the pod on Facebook at Backlog Books Podcast or at backlogbooks.com. The music is by Joseph McDade. You can hear more of his work at josephmcdade.com. Thank you for coming along on this ride. Hopefully the next book will be better. (laughs) 